Hello, I'm Catherine de Volder. This is Thinking Out Loud, conversations with leading philosophers from around the world on topics that concern us all. This is a special edition on ethical questions raised by the corona pandemic. So this time I will be talking to philosopher Carissa Villis from the University of Oxford. In her book, Privacy is Power, she exposes how our personal data is giving too much power to big tech and governments and why that matters and what we can do about it. So she seemed like the right person to talk about the use of contact tracing apps in our fight against the coronavirus pandemic. There are different types of apps and they can be centralized or decentralized, but they all aim to let people know if they have been in close contact with someone who has COVID-19. If so, then they should get a test and self-isolate. So let's find out why these apps may pose a threat to our privacy. So some people are worried about these apps, especially because they may threaten our privacy. Do you think that such threats to privacy are real? Should we be worried about our privacy when we use such apps? It's definitely a consideration. One of the problems that many apps have had, including, for instance, the one used in Qatar and the one used in India, is that they're very easy to hack. Location data is incredibly sensitive. Through location data, you can know where somebody lives, where they work, um, who they sleep with, whether they go to a hospital. You can infer whether they do drugs, all kinds of sensitive information. And this is particularly sensitive in the context of a disease that can kill. So if you can hack people and figure or try to figure out who might have infected the loved one who might have died from this disease, it can be very, very sensitive. So that's one concern, the possibility of, of a hack. Another concern is if you have a centralized database with all these connections between people, that's again very sensitive information. It not only tells you where people live and work and so on, all, all about location data, but also their networks, the, their connection networks, their network, networks of people around them. So you can know whether a journalist met with a source, whether a lawyer met with a client, a doctor with a patient and so on. And again, this is very sensitive, especially in the wrong hands. So if, if we think about government that might be untrustworthy, then it's a really big worry. And um, so I think many people don't really care about these privacy threats because they think they have nothing to hide and that privacy is only an issue for you know, celebrities or politicians or journalists, maybe, or criminals. So are they making a mistake then? I mean, should it matter to them too? Yes, they're making various mistakes. One mistake is that they do have something to hide and something to fear. So in a recent survey that I did with a colleague, we found out that about 92% of people have had some kind of bad experience related to privacy online. So eventually, if you're not careful with your privacy, you're going to get hacked you're going to uh, get your credit card number stolen, uh, you're going to be exposed in some way, you're going to be publicly humiliated. And this happens to normal people who are not lawyers and not journalists and nobody special. So on the one hand, yes, you do have something to fear for yourself. And then the second kind of mistake is that you should take care of your privacy for other people as well, for, for society in general. When we don't protect our privacy, we leave our democracy at risk. So an excellent example is Cambridge Analytica. It's like a textbook example of how knowledge is power and privacy is related to power in that way. Because the more people know about you, the more they can hack you in a way, or the more, the more they can exploit your, your vulnerabilities. So what happened in Cambridge Analytica was that they exploited people's psychology to build this psychological warfare tool that they could use on any voter 
to try to sway elections. And that affected us all. It affected, obviously, people who in, in the United Kingdom who are being affected by Brexit, but also European people who are also affected by Brexit, mm -hmm. and Americans who are, were affected by the, the Trump election, and anybody who is touched by world politics, and that's pretty much everybody, gets affected. One could say, well, privacy is important, but this is a pandemic. I mean, shouldn't we risk our privacy in, if this can save many lives? Of course, we should consider it very seriously, but we shouldn't be uncritical. There's this phenomenon that's very common in crisis in which we're in a and we really want to get out of it as soon as possible. People are dying. It's really extreme. And the temptation is to say, yes, let's do whatever it takes, no matter what, and to assume that that's going to work. And actually, there are many questions about that. The first one to notice is that, of course, a contact tracing app works on a phone. If you don't have a phone, it doesn't work. And there are many people who don't have a phone or who don't carry their phone around all the time. But let's suppose that everybody has a phone and everybody carries it around. Even then, you have at least two problems, false positives and false negatives. So suppose you meet someone uh, down the street and it's a friend and you haven't seen each other in a while. And so you give each other a hug and a kiss and you're not in contact for more than 15 minutes. So the app doesn't, doesn't record it as a contact, but actually you were close enough that there was um, a contagion there. The app would, wouldn't be able to notice it, and so it would be a case of a false negative. You would feel safe because your app says you're absolutely fine, and in fact, you're not. And then there's a case of false positives. One case would be a case in which you are very close to another person, maybe in the same floor, but in different rooms, or in different floors, but in, in the same building. And because you're separated by a wall, there was never a risk, but you're app will record that as a contact. Perhaps one could say, well, many of us already give up much of our privacy through the internet, uh, especially through the use of apps and, and social media. So perhaps using a, a track and trace app only adds a small additional risk to the risk we already take. So if that's true, the benefits of using the app can more easily outweigh you know, the small additional risk that comes with it. So doesn't that provide sort of a good reason to use the app, at least as long as we're going to keep being reckless uh, with our privacy online anyway? Well, again, it depends on the app. So if there's an app that's you know really well tested and looks very secure and it's decentralized, then maybe the answer is yes. If it's a centralized app, probably not. Because that kind of um, data is, is, is very sensitive and even though you give it up in other ways it's harder to aggregate it in the same way. Furthermore this is data that will end up in the hands of governments and even though we give a lot of data to corporations and we shouldn't and many times governments get a copy of that data there is a lot of leeway for abuse and governments can um, force people to do things that corporations typically can't they have a, a different kind of power relation with citizens, and that is a further risk. And what do you think about um, the argument that sort of the, the track and trace apps are actually much less intrusive than measures we already accept? So some people say, well, if we accept, you know, lockdown, social distancing, and so on, um, shouldn't we also accept the, the track and trace apps, even if there is this potential harm? I mean, there are many considerations to to take into account there. One is that, you know, it's a slippery slope. It's like, okay, it's, you know, if we accept this, then we should accept anything. And that just leads us to, to a very undesirable place. Secondly, again, 
it, it matters a lot how effective something is. So social distances is directly effective in avoiding contagion in a way that app is not. And so it makes a huge difference. And furthermore, there is this danger about privacy because in other kinds of cases, when you give something up, the consequence is very direct and very palpable. So when you isolate in your home, it's very direct why it's bad for you and how much you're missing people and the opportunities that you're uh, missing both professionally and personally. It's very tangible. It's very clear. It's, it's, it's very fast. Privacy doesn't work like that. So you give up your privacy and you don't feel anything. You don't bleed. It's not hard to breathe. Um, you know, your skin is not broken. There isn't a palpable feeling. And then month down the line, maybe two months down the line, maybe one year month down the line, your identity gets stolen, you get your money stolen, or you end up with a government that abuses its power and suddenly um, you get, or you could get discriminated against by a company. It, is it conceivable to have an app that is not so dangerous or should we just not use any track and trace app? at all, you think? It's conceivable. So the way to do it is first you put all the physical conditions in place that are necessary for the app to work. So first you have to have you know, a good program of mass testing and, and track and trace. Uh, because even if you have an app, you need um, manual track and trace because th that kind of information that you can't get from an app. So you know, a manual track and trace mm -hmm. program will figure out whether two people met were in a park or we're in an inside place with no windows, and that kind of information makes a huge difference. So once you have all the physical uh, requirements in place, then you design an app that's super mm -hmm. secure. You go to privacy experts, you talk to them, you ask for their advice, you make them test it, you go to computer scientists, you try to challenge them to hack it. And you know people want to save lives. Nobody wants to be in a situation. This is horrendous. So experts will collaborate, and they have collaborated. So once you get the green light of people who say, yes, you know, I've tested this app and I couldn't break into it. And once, you know, a privacy expert says, you know, I've looked at this app and it's absolutely as solid as can be, then people will get behind it. But if you do it in a disorganized fashion, you don't inform people, you don't give reasons, you design an app that is so faulty that, you know, everybody can see that it's leaking everywhere, and then it's going to be a Thanks for listening to this Thinking Out Loud interview. You can also watch Thinking Out Loud videos on YouTube on the Practical Ethics channel and remain up to date via the Thinking Out Loud Facebook page.